This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And in this episode, I want to take a look at really the big picture, the whole story of the life of Jacob. You've been in church and you've been in Sunday school. You remember the kind of founders and fathers of the nation of Israel. You think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob, he was born, he was a twin brother, Jacob and Esau. And, uh, you know, when twins are born, if you know any twins, if you're friends with twins, you know that one of the twins will say, I'm the older twin. And that means they were born seconds or minutes before uh, their brother or sister was born. Well, in Jacob and Esau's case, Jacob was the younger of the two twins, which in our day is not really a big deal. Uh, But in his day, it was a bigger deal because the way that inheritance worked in the ancient world, the firstborn son received the bulk of the inheritance compared to everybody else. And the reason for that is less of just saying, hey, the only person who matters is the son who's born first. And it has more to do with the fact that if you have this territory that belongs to your family and you divide it evenly between five children and then all those five children divided evenly between their five children, eventually everybody is not going to have enough land to live on, especially because these were agriculturally minded people And they needed fields to grow their crops and to graze their herds and all those different kind of things. So the firstborn would receive the bulk of the land and the property and the, you know, the animals and all that stuff in order for it to be enough for a family to continue to live on this land and live uh, successfully in the amount of property that they had. And so... When Jacob is born, the quote-unquote younger of the two twins, uh, he misses out. I'm guessing that this is probably how he would have felt growing up, that he kind of missed out on the lottery by a matter of minutes or seconds. And not only that happens, uh, but when he's born in ancient Israel, And really, in most cultures throughout the world, names mean something. Uh, If you grew up in the United States and you spent all your time here, you know that we don't really give names to people. When kids are born, we think of unique names or popular names or whatever, less names that have meaning to them. But if you're not from the United States, if you grew up in another culture or if that's your background or if you've spent some time internationally, you know that it's really common for people to have names that their parents gave them this name because of the significance of this name, of the meaning behind it. And this was also how the ancient world worked. And so when Jacob and Esau were born, Esau, the older of the two twins, he was a really, really hairy baby. And so he was named Esau, which 
pretty much means hairy. And then Jacob, we're told in scripture that when he was born as the younger twin, he was grabbing on to Esau's heel and he was trying to kind of wrestle and gain control. That's how they interpreted it, knowing that the firstborn son would have had more uh, access, more chance of succeeding, more possessions, more uh, property, all these kind of things. So he was named Jacob, which means one who grabs at the heel. But it was also kind of a, a phrase that meant liar, cheater, scammer. And I want you to think about for a second what it would feel like if you walked with your kids or you walked with your parents and the kids were introduced. And, hey, here's my two kids. This one's named Harry because he's Harry. And this one is named Scammer because eh, you can't really trust this guy. Jacob goes through life being named Cheater scammer, liar, guy you can't trust, con artist. Every time somebody says his name, calls him by name, calls him for dinner, says hi to him, whatever, he's hearing this. And I don't know, you know, maybe uh, this was something that was already kind of in his makeup and his parents wound up naming him something that sort of made sense. Um, or maybe as he heard people referring to him all the time this way, uh, he just kind of slowly started to internalize it a little bit. And he started thinking, okay, I mean, if everybody already thinks I'm a scammer and a liar and a con artist, um, I'm going to have to just make my way through life by cheating people. And the first kind of glimpse that we get of this, uh, the, the famous story of Esau selling his birthright. He, Esau is the outdoorsman. He's the hunter, the adventure seeker. And Jacob is more of the introvert, more of the homebody. He's known for being at home. He likes to do some cooking. He likes to kind of hang out around home. And so one day Esau comes back from being out exploring the world, enjoying his adventures, and Jacob's at home cooking some stew. And um, when Esau comes in, he's like, man, I, I need some of that stew. I'm, I'm so hungry. I'm starving. You know that feeling where you're so hungry that you kind of, you start to get a little bit kind of jittery, a little bit shaky. That's how I imagine he's coming back in the door. He's like, man, I've been out, I've been working hard, I've been exercising, I've been moving through this terrain, whatever the case may be. And, you know, think of coming back from the gym. Sometimes you're like, I got to get some food in me now. Uh, he wasn't coming from the gym because his life was active like that. He just got his workout from living the way that he normally lived. And he comes back in and I, I picture him shaky, like, okay, I got to get some food in me. And so he says, Jacob, can I, can I get some of that food you're making? Jacob says, ah, no, nah, I don't think that's going to work out. 
And Esau is like, I'll, I'll give you anything. I'll give you my birthright. Now, Jacob, knowing that he missed out on this inheritance by a matter of moments, it seems like in this time, he's like, ooh, I've got an opportunity here. I've kind of got them right where I want them. I can take advantage of this situation and I can come out ahead. And so he's like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that deal. I'll give you a bowl of this stew for your birthright, which would be uh, the blessing and kind of the, the oldest son was expected to carry on in the name of the family. And so this was going to transfer from Esau now to Jacob in this moment of, yeah, I, I really need this food. I'll give up whatever for it. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm so hungry. I don't really value other things right now. And so this is the first glimpse that we get of Jacob kind of taking advantage of a situation and turning it to his favor. Cheater, Jacob. And then as time goes on, um, their father, Isaac, he's uh, getting close to his death and he knows it. And so he tells Esau as the oldest son, he says, Esau, I want you to go and I want you to go hunt. I want you to, to kill something and come back and cook it up the exact way that I like it. You know how I like the the food that you hunt for, how I really love how you prepare that stuff. And he said, you go do that. And then once I eat, I'll give you my blessing, which in the ancient world, again, this was a big deal uh, to, to bless and to pass this along to your children was a significant moment. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, you see as especially fathers are getting to the end of their lives, they take these moments and they pass on these blessings to their children. And they speak these words over them that really in some ways kind of not just bless, but almost sort of prophesy and predict of what the future is going to look like for their children. And so this is a significant moment. Well, Jacob was really kind of the favorite son of his mother. And so what she does, Rebecca, she hears this, that Isaac is ready to bless kind of his favorite son, Esau, but she wants the blessing to go to her favorite son, Jacob. And so she says, all right, here's what we're going to do. You get dressed up in some of Esau's clothes and I'm going to cook up some food that I know your dad really likes. And then, you know, I guess eh, he, he's going to know from feeling your arms that you're obviously not hairy like your brother Esau. And he's going to be able to tell from your voice that you're not gruff and deep voice like your brother. So we got to figure that out. So they wound up putting pelts on his arms, animal pelts on Jacob's arms. Which, as I think about that, I'm like, man, I've known some people that were hairy, but not like that. Not that you could, like, put an animal pelt on an arm and you'd go, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this person. So I'm picturing that Isaac is probably pretty far gone at this point. 
Um, you know, I, I've, if you've ever known somebody in your life who has dealt with dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that, that's sort of the level of vulnerability that I picture Isaac having here because otherwise this scam wouldn't work. I mean, he was losing his eyesight, sure, but nobody is that hairy that you replace their arm for an animal pelt and it seems like that person. So I'm picturing that he's kind of, you know, losing his mind a little bit. And Jacob, liar, scammer, con artist, cheater. He and his mom cook up this plan and they pull it off. Jacob goes in and he makes his voice sound really low and pretends like he's Esau. And Isaac makes a comment that doesn't seem quite right. Something's off about this whole situation. But he smells his clothes and it smells like Esau. And he feels his arms and it feels like Esau. And so he gives him the blessing. So Jacob, he now has conned his way into the blessing into the inheritance, into this birthright and this blessing from his father. And so when Esau comes home and finds out what's happened here, he's obviously really, really upset. Uh, He's been scammed by his brother, which he should have seen coming because he knew that that guy was good for nothing. And so he comes up with this plan. He's like, okay, my dad's still living right now, but as soon as he dies, I'm going to kill my brother because he just, it, this is just going to keep happening. He's never going to do anything good. This guy is not worth having around. So Jacob hears about this and he takes off. He runs away from home. And he goes and he stays with uh, his uncle in another town. This is his mother's brother, so Laban, and he works with Laban for a while. And while he's there, he meets his cousin, which, again, is how you can tell that this story took place a long time ago. So he meets his cousin, Rachel, and shortly he falls in love with her. And so he makes a deal with his uncle and he says, okay, I want to marry Rachel. How do we make that work? And his uncle says, okay, if you work for me for seven years, um, you can marry her. And so Jacob does. And we're told that he loved Rachel so much that those seven years just kind of flew by. He's like, hey, the the payout for what I'm going to get here for this work is so worth it. I don't mind doing it. I'm just doing my thing, making it happen, getting to my end result of finally getting to marry this woman that I love. And so seven years passes and um, there's a wedding ceremony. And I don't know how this happens. I try to think this through and I'm like, man, this is quite a scam that gets run this time on Jacob. Because he goes through the wedding ceremony, he gets officially married, and the next morning, he finds out that it actually wasn't Rachel that he married. 
Um, it was her older sister, Leah. And the guy who had spent his time, his early years, being the scammer is on the receiving end of getting ripped off. And I wonder if for a moment he thought, man, I, I bet you this was how my dad felt. and I bet this was how my brother felt when I was pulling things over on them, when I was ripping them off and cheating them and lying and scamming. And he finds that now he's experiencing that himself. And so then he goes back to his uncle and he's like, what in the world, man? You, you cheated me. We had a deal. I did my end of the deal. You didn't do your end of the deal. And his uncle says, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah I know. I, I ripped you off. You know, we don't usually marry the younger daughters off before the older daughters. So, you know, I had to do what I had to do. But if you work seven more years, you can marry Rachel, the daughter that you thought you already were marrying. And so Jacob agrees, and he works again for seven more years. Eventually, he marries Rachel after the seven years. And then, uh, slowly over time, as you can imagine, I mean, this has been 14 years, uh, eventually some tension builds between Jacob's workers and his uncle Laban's workers as they're out tending their flocks and doing the different things that are involved in raising livestock. Uh, there's some conflict that arises between these two groups of people. And so they figure out like, okay, maybe there's a way that we can make this work and we can kind of divide up the flocks and we can, you know, figure all this out. And uh, it's, it's hard to tell from reading through the, uh, the story in Genesis here, but uh, Jacob describes that his flock is growing larger and larger and his uncle, uh, his flock is growing smaller and smaller. Jacob describes it as God's blessing, but in a lot of ways, as you read through it, it kind of looks like Jacob is doing a little bit of you know, underhanded, a little bit of taking advantage of somebody else. And again, we see Jacob living up to this idea. Cheater, scammer, liar, guy that you can't trust. And so this tension has been mounting and he decides that he's going to take his family and his herds and all this stuff and instead of trying to deal with this head on with his uncle, they just take off. They don't mention anything. They just start heading somewhere, take off in some direction so they can go kind of have their own spot. And Laban catches up to him. And there's initially some conflict and it looks like things might go bad, but they figure things out and things get resolved and everything is dealt with. But hilariously, while Jacob is running away from Laban because he's afraid that there's going to be some conflict there, he's actually running, unbeknownst to him, toward his brother Esau, who 14 plus years ago he ripped off and he knew that his brother was trying to kill him. 
And so he thinks that, oh man, I'm putting my whole family in jeopardy because we're heading right toward Esau. And I hear that he's got a whole bunch of people with him. Sounds kind of like an army to me. I don't know if we're going to survive. And so he's realized that he's running from one situation that he's caused an issue in. He's running right toward another. So he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to divide his family and his herds and his group up into separate groups, thinking, okay, one of us is going to go this way and the other is going to go the other way. And that way, at least if he saw catches up to us, he's not going to be able to kill everybody because that's what he thinks is happening. He thinks this is his day or week or whatever of reckoning where everything that he's been involved in in the past, all the ripping off and cheating and lying and everything is catching up to him all at once. And he doesn't want his entire family to be totally destroyed. And so this is where we pick up the story. I want to read from Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 23. After he had sent them across the stream, that's his family and the group that's with him, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, I think that's interesting because it's kind of telling that this is just the sort of guy that Jacob is. Uh, This is all the setup to this big wrestling match. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Okay, there's not really a setup. Like, why are they wrestling? What's going on? What's the backstory here? This is, I think, just telling a little bit more about the way Jacob's wired. A guy showed up. Well, yeah, of course. We just started fighting. We started wrestling. This is what it's like to be around Jacob. This is how things go. Someone shows up. There's not even a line about how it started. But there's conflict. So Jacob, he's wrestling until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, in the story, we don't know the heading in your Bible. I'm guessing it probably says something like, Jacob wrestles with God. Well, the story here, uh, we don't know if this is God, if this is an angel, if this is, who knows, but there's something spiritual. There's something significant going on here. And it's not just about this wrestling match that neither one can win. It's about a new identity for Jacob. Because when he tells his wrestling partner his name, he says, my name is Jacob. He knows what that brings along with it. Liar, scammer, con artist, cheater. 
guy that you can't trust, guy that's going to take advantage of you if he's given an opportunity for a moment. And then his wrestling partner says, no, your name will no longer be Jacob. Your name's going to be Israel because you've struggled with God and with people and you overcame. Now, I want to really talk about this idea for a minute because even though for us we read through that and it's like, okay, yep, it's he's got a new name. Um, I believe that for Jacob, he experienced, I don't know, maybe it wasn't like instantaneous in that moment, but as he started to tell people, no, my name, uh, yeah, it used to be Jacob, uh, it used to be scammer, con artist, ripoff guy, but now it's a different name. It's, uh, it's Israel. I think he experienced so much freedom. And I tell that whole story to talk about this idea because I think that for a lot of us, um, we've been carrying something around. We've been believing something about our identity, about who we are, about what kind of value we have because of something that happened years or decades ago. Maybe as a kid, we remember being told by a parent or by some other adult in our lives that had authority or an older sibling or something like that, that we were worthless or that we were no good. We were stupid. We were never going to amount to anything. Maybe it wasn't something that was said, but it was something that was done. And maybe, um, Maybe as a child or later on in life, who knows, um, you've experienced some kind of uh, abuse, somebody taking advantage of you in a physical, mental, sexual, emotional, some kind of a way. And it's left you with an idea about what your identity is. Maybe when you hear your name spoken, you have some ideas attached to that that are a lot like Jacob. Good for nothing, con artist, scammer. This guy's going to rip you off and lie and cheat and steal. And maybe for some of us, uh, those reputations were well-earned and deserved. Maybe we did spend some time as a liar or a thief or someone that was entirely focused on themselves, really selfish, really just looking out for number one. Maybe we do have a history of being violent, quick-tempered, angry, full of hate and rage and unforgiveness. And when we hear someone say our name, we know that that stuff is attached to it. You know, if I hear somebody greet me and say, Alan, what is the first thing that comes into my mind? Do I, do I have a bunch of baggage attached to that idea of my name? Do I think that other people have a bunch of baggage attached 
to my name. As I was thinking about this, um, I can't remember if I've talked. I think I did a little bit that my wife and I were in the process of moving. Um, We've been working on renovating the new house for a while. And in the process of doing this, I've realized because Annalise came to me and she said, hey, I'd love to help out around the house with, you know, some of the painting and some of the getting things together and kind of, you know, getting this thing finished up. But she said, I know that you're really particular. And I don't know if my painting is going to be up to the standard that you want it to be up to. And I started thinking for a little bit after that comment, and I realized, okay, yeah, I I grew up with um, two parents that were perfectionists in a lot of ways. Uh, My dad was really particular about how things looked around the house. I can remember uh, the first time I ever mowed the lawn when he was gone. I was probably 11 or 12 or something like that. And when he came back, I realized that I had mowed the lawn just in straight lines, going kind of side to side, back and forth. And normally he mowed the lawn at a diagonal angle. So it looked a little bit better, a little unique and all that stuff. And I realized that I had messed up and I had dropped the ball and I had let him down. And 11 or 12 years old, I remember crying because I mowed the lawn side to side instead of diagonal. Um, I can remember moments of, uh, you know, showing tests and finding, you know, oh, I got a 94. You know, my mom being like, okay, 94, that's good. Let's take a look and see what what were the ones that you missed. And they didn't do this out of anything bad, out of spite, out of whatever. But from really early on, um, I grew attached to this idea that things needed to be done a very certain way and they needed to be done exactly that way. And that's something that I think I've kind of attached and kind of carried on throughout life. When I make a mistake, when I mess something up, um, it really just in the back of my mind, it's just something that I'll think about for, you know, three or four days. A stupid, silly little mistake will just weigh on me and just go, ah, just drag me down. And that's not even a major significant negative thing that was attached to me or associated with me. Um, I'm guessing that all of us here listening have something that we can remember, whether it was, you know, pretty insignificant as far as things go, like mine, where you can see, oh, that's why I've been carrying this perfectionist streak with me for the rest of my life. Maybe it was a much heavier thing where you can see, wow, that's why I've had, had trouble finding myself and thinking that I have value as a person because I can remember this being said or this being done. 
And we carry that stuff all through life as part of our identity, just like Jacob did. And then the really unique thing that happens out of that, just like with Jacob, when you have this idea attached to you and other people assume this about you, when everybody thought he was a scammer, cheater, liar, um, I wonder how much of that, his actions out of that were kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, this is who I am. This is my identity. And when we see ourselves as broken or as less than or as worthless or as people who are angry, who fly off the handle, people who are dishonest, people who all these things that we carry along with us, the identity, the words that other people used and spoke about who we were, that we then started to internalize, I think that what God wants to offer is a fresh start, a clean slate. And like he did with Jacob, I think God wants to offer us a new identity. Now, when we think of Jacob and his story in the Old Testament, we know his name and we remember all that, but we sure know the name Israel a whole lot better, don't we? That's what the whole nation wound up named after, not his old name, but his new name, his new identity. The 12 tribes of Israel wound up being named, each of them, after one of his, his sons or his grandsons. And what God did when he gave Jacob this new identity um, is he gave him a new story. And we all know, um, I really believe, we all know what it's like to have something attached to our name. When we hear our name, when I hear Alan, what do I think? When other people hear Alan, what do they think? And the lesson from Jacob, the lesson from Israel, the lesson from how God worked in the midst of giving this man a new identity and a new story is that the stuff that's been holding us back that's been limiting us, that we feel like has been in some ways kind of providing us this destiny. Like, oh, well, everyone already thinks I'm like this. I'm just going to keep doing my thing and I got to live up to their expectations. Um, the reminder here is that God can change all that. God can give us a new story, a new identity, and a new, in a lot of ways, a new lease on life, a second chance. If you've been holding on to stuff, if you've been living in this identity that you see now, that it's not your identity, it's what somebody gave to you. It's what somebody did to you. It's what somebody told you about yourself. There's hope in this story that God brings new life that God will give us a new story.